According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and our new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Matthew 13 and Mark 6 are passages this morning as we examine Galilean ministry, episode number 33, the second rejection of Christ at Nazareth. Matthew 13, 53 through 58, the end of chapter 13. And then Mark 6, the first part of Mark 6, verses 1 through 6. Been a couple of weeks since we had the week off last week. Appreciate, actually it was beneficial that I had the extra day. I arrived on Tuesday. My luggage arrived on Wednesday and uh, other things there. So it, it worked out. I just kind of uh, hung out at my parents' house until I could shower and get dressed and, and things like that, you know, shave and stuff like that. Then there were on the return trip, another snag that this one being my fault i left my razor and other things there my toiletries and whatnot so anyway who cares that's all just travel kind of stuff but real pricey razor i didn't want to lose it so i went out and mom shipping it to me should be here by sunday or monday and uh so i went out and got some real cheap disposable things oh nasty i tell you they hurt like you wouldn't believe anyway you see how we suffer for Christ? This is, this is persecution and affliction in the, in the United States of America, I tell you. Something else. Anyway, Matthew 13, as we get started, let's take time for silent prayer, shall we pray? Father, we do thank you for the time together, and we thank you for your faithfulness, for traveling mercies and safety there and back. Father, we uh, do lift up the congregation in Everett, asking for your wisdom and guidance as they begin a uh, search for a new pastor, and we uh, we pray for your blessings there. Asking, Father, for the headship of Jesus Christ to be clear and, and uh, ever-present, that uh, the recognition of who their new shepherd is would be uh, obvious to all and unanimous. Uh, as uh, Father, it's not up to them to determine who their next shepherd is. Jesus Christ has already appointed that, and it's simply up to them to be obedient to that which uh, Christ has designated. And and we pray that you would supply wisdom on the part of the older believers there, the the men that have been trained and equipped and prepared for this very moment. They didn't know they were being prepared for this very moment, but this is where they find themselves, and this is the assignment you set before them. So I pray that having equipped them to do the task, that you would guide and direct them each step of the way. Father, uh, we ask for your blessing upon our time today in, in the Word of God, and we thank you for the opportunity to assemble together. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's uh, remind ourselves what we're dealing with. We're dealing with a second trip to Nazareth. Uh, we do understand that this is a second time and not simply uh, divergent details of the first time. Uh, we did study in uh, Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 30, the uh, the other incident that was there in Nazareth. And since folks will find this incident recorded in Matthew and Mark and the other one recorded in Luke, it has led folks to speculate and consider, well, maybe it was one and the same. Maybe it was one and the same incident. And uh, Luke recorded the, the hostility and the attempt to drive him off a cliff. And uh, Matthew and uh, Mark did not record that, but they recorded some of these other aspects of it. Uh, and, and I don't dispute that. You have to examine it. It's a legitimate aspect of synoptic uh, reconciliation where you, you compare and you contrast Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and you do put them together to uh, ask yourself, is it one and the same event with divergent details, or are they 
two separate events. I do believe that they are two separate events, and with the uh, the timing of them located the way they are, Galilean ministry number two, and Galilean ministry number thirty-three. In any event, uh, we do note. As we look at it here, let's just read through it. Verse 55 says, When Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there. He came to his hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man, notice the emphasis on humanity, where did this man get his uh, miraculous powers, this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? No mention of his father uh, at this point. In fact, we don't see Joseph until uh, since that episode when he was 12 years old uh, and uh, stayed behind at the temple there. We haven't seen Joseph since then, and it's uh, understood that he has since died. Then verse 56, and his sisters, plural, are they not all, again, plural, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. It says in verse 57, but Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. Now, His teaching ministry caused astonishment, and in our previous session we examined some aspects there of ekplaso, the Greek vocabulary, ekplaso, number 1605, uh, the idea of having the wind knocked out of you. If you think of ek in terms of ek, exit, uh, and so forth, where something is cast out, and plaso, the idea of being struck, uh, just punched in the gut to where your your breath is, is expelled out. That's the kind of shock that uh, that they had in the astonishment. And it came because of the teaching with authority. Teaching with authority. And that was the case here. It was not like uh, the teaching of that they were accustomed to in the synagogue with the scribes and the Pharisees, uh, the kind of teaching that we uh, find out about in, in Matthew 7, Matthew 22. You have the scriptures there. We looked at them. We also looked at the martyrdom of Polycarp. I remember as we closed that session two weeks ago, the astonishment that took place there. Uh, but it's the same thing that we have today when, uh, you know, people visit a church and they expect what they're going to get is kind of a, a sermonette or a homily or something where they can just kind of get a, a 15 or 20 minute feel good deal where they, you know, they're, they're told that they're OK and it's not so bad. And if they just, you know, stick with the church and, and, and play the religious game, their life will be OK. And then they come to a teaching church, a doctrinal church, and they find, wait a minute, there's content that's going out. People have notebooks. They're writing things down. They're trying to learn. They're trying to put things together with other things. And, and they realize that there is an advancement program they had previously never really paid much attention to. And it's called growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we, we do see that same, uh, that same astonishment as it takes place in our ministries today. They want to know where did he get this wisdom and where did he receive these powers uh wisdom is our old friend here sophia number 46 78 you might have a granddaughter named sophia and and all the rest uh it is wisdom and it is available for everyone that's the blessing that there is no uh hidden knowledge there's no layer of uh of doctrine where that is only uh available for those who have been initiated in other words in terms of various mystery religions and mystery cults that took place 
in the first few centuries. Or uh, other aspects, the distinctions between clergy and laity, where there's realms of doctrine and theology that, that as pastors, of course, we have to plunge into. But don't trouble your mind over it. It's saying you wouldn't understand it anyway. And, and, and we, we denigrate the common believer as if somehow they're, uh, they're not capable of venturing into certain realms that are best left to the experts, best left to the, to the professionals, to the scholars, and so forth. And simply... You know, trust us, we'll tell you what it means, we'll tell you what to believe, what to think, and so forth. And with the moment you start down that slippery slope, you're plunging into that realm of the Nicolaitans, of the the, and the clergy-laity distinctions, and just, uh, you know, we'll tell you what to think and how to live, and, and trust us, our religion will, will uh, get you there. No. All wisdom is available. Every believer is to grow in grace and knowledge. Every believer is to attain to wisdom. We're to obtain wisdom. That's the beginning of wisdom. We're to attain wisdom and with our wisdom to attain understanding. Likewise, powers. Now, we're not expected to have powers today. We're living in the post-apostolic age of the Christian church. We don't have powers, plural. But we do have power, Singular, and that is the power of the Holy Spirit that works in and through us for the Father's good pleasure. That is the empowerment of our spiritual gift, the empowerment of our ministry, and the empowerment of our effects that we accomplish with our gifts, ministries, and effects. We do have power. And the ministry of the Word of God empowers all that we do. Every ministry that we pursue, every work of service that we accomplish, we were saved in Christ Jesus unto good works which were prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And those good works are what? Power, workings of divine power in and through us, see. And so another aspect of our ministry that might cause wonderment or might cause uh, astonishment as people watch it is they might actually see some power take place. And that, that gets pretty uh, overwhelming if up until now people have been accustomed to accomplishing things through human effort. Um, the power of God's word is is what it is. It's infinite. It's omnipotent. It's it's the essence of God himself because he's magnified his word in accordance with his own name. So the power of his word as it goes forth is omnipotence. It is God's power. And when you're living the word, uh, unbelievers especially, but even untaught believers can look at you and say, where did this man, where did this woman, where did this person get this power? I don't understand how it is that they're not... Uh, a basket case. Why are they not grieving? Why are they not falling apart? Because uh, because I'm falling apart and they should be too, <laughs> right? Or if I was faced with what they're faced with, uh, I'd I'd be I'd be a drunk by tomorrow, you know. And and the world doesn't understand that because they turn to alcohol, or they turn to sex, or they turn to uh, money or, or career success. They 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 find whatever they can in their frantic search for happiness, and they don't understand why believers with teaching have that empowerment working in and through them in their life. And so we don't have the powers plural, but we do have power singular, and it really is uh, filling everything that we are and everything that we do. Now, under points three and four, then, as we conclude this today, um, his fellow Nazarenes, and the idea of a Nazarene is that he's from Nazareth, not that he was under a Nazarite vow. If he was under a Nazarite vow, he's in a lot of trouble <laughs> because he consumed alcohol, he touched dead bodies, he uh, he associated, he had meals with with sinners and and uh, and a variety of other things. I even expected he got a haircut 
that, uh, you know, the Renaissance painters always wanted to have him with a long, long flowing kind of effeminate kind of hair. Uh, I believe that, uh, that he kept his hair cut rather short as, uh, as would have been keeping with the Davidic line of the tribe of Judah in any event. Uh, we don't know what he looked like. We have no painting of him, no description of him, other than that he was uh, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, one from whom men hide their face. Uh, but his fellow Nazarenes, not Nazarites, Nazarenes, uh, those uh, that he grew up among, his family, extended family. Um, remember, when, when you're a clan society, your neighbors are related to you somehow, all right, that uh, uh, it's more than just simply cousins or distant cousins. It's actually clans that these would be fellow Jews of his line, of his tribe, and so forth. Although a lot of that got disrupted quite a bit when uh, uh, the regions got got resettled, when the Assyrians threw a bunch of Samaritans in there, and then when the Romans reorganized certain things, clearly a lot of that got resettled. Most of his family would have been from the Bethlehem region rather than from the Nazareth region. And so we don't want to read a whole lot into this. Nevertheless, they are the ones that he grew up with, neighbors and so forth, if not family members. And uh, their objectivity is completely shot because of that. They watched him grow up. They, they're looking at him now. And uh, you even have a sense of, uh, of jealousy that creeps through. If somebody uh, in your circles... Uh, starts to exceed uh, expectations or they start to excel, uh, then comes the resentments of, well, who, who does he think he is? See, who does he think he is? Where does this, where does this uh, you know, Nazareth kid get thinking that he can just start accumulating disciples for himself and students for himself and, and, and travel around from place to place and teach in, in the synagogues and whatnot? He didn't even go to the schools that were expected. You know, our rabbi here in the synagogue, he sat at the feet of Gamaliel or he sat at the feet of Shimei or whoever his teacher was. He, we, we, we scrimped and we saved and we, we, uh, we, uh, the whole community came together and really, really helped this family so that this rabbi could go off to the schools and have the greatest schools and have the greatest education. And then he comes back to Nazareth and he's, now he's been teaching in our synagogues and he's been teaching us this great theology from the school of Hillel or whatever school he was from. And that, that would then be a, a mark of pride, a, an aspect for the community to be really excited about. Uh, but not this carpenter, this uppity carpenter. Who does he think he is? See, he was his dad was a carpenter. He was a good carpenter. We expect that that Jesus was a good carpenter. I, you know, I've never had a carpenter that was sinless before. You know, you might have had some good carpenters who might have done some good work. But whoever they are, they weren't perfect. Right. He was perfect. Can you imagine the kind of things he would build and so forth? So, yeah, and maybe we read a little bit into it here. I don't think we're going too far when we observe that uh, in their comments, where did this man, and the, and the term man used um, a couple of times here, uh, where did this man get this wisdom in these miraculous powers? And the, the emphasis on the where, stressing location, um, I think sets the context here in Nazareth the way that it is, that they had some mental attitude struggles here. They had some real, uh, you know, and you had another taste of it too, and Philip just kind of snorted and said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? 
you realize that whatever was going on here in this region, this western or southwestern region of Galilee here, uh, whatever was going on there, there were some real um, boundaries between uh, you know us and them, between uh, the locals and the uh, and the not so locals, and and uh, and I think we see that there. Now he's called the carpenter's son in Matthew's record, but he, in Mark's record he's called the carpenter. Matthew 13:55 is called the carpenter's son. Is this not the carpenter's son? All right. Now, and then in Mark, if you flip over there to Mark 6, they say, "Is this not the carpenter?" Mark 6 and verse 3. Is this is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. So. Uh, to be called both the carpenter's son and also the carpenter is is interesting, uh, just on an occupational basis, uh, not only for what Joseph did to earn a living, but then what Jesus did as he was trained. It was always expected that that, that a Jewish boy would would grow up and be trained in the in the uh, career of their father or uh, or an uncle or some other uh, family member if. Uh, uh, you know, that they had to have a trade by the time they were 12 years old, that they had to have a trade where they could be uh, beyond an apprentice, but a journeyman and uh, prepared to uh, have a wife and, and move on into their into their career field. And if, in fact, it was shortly after the age of 12 that Joseph died, then Jesus, the firstborn son, the oldest son, became the man of the house very early and probably uh, continued that carpentry business to uh, to support his mom, his multiple sisters, his younger kid brothers, and all the rest. Um, so if he himself was a carpenter, let's say, for up to 18 years, you know, he would leave home at 30 to go get baptized at the Jordan River and begin his begin his uh, public ministry. Uh, and you know, whatever age he was when Joseph died, it wasn't, maybe it wasn't exactly at 12. It could have been 14, 16, in there somewhere. Um, but still, minimum of a decade, probably more, that he lived here in Nazareth as a carpenter. And yet, as recorded here in Matthew, there was a certain crowd of them that, that would just call him the carpenter's son. Even though he himself had a, a carpentry business there for 10 years or more. He's the carpenter's son. And uh, anyway, I just find that just find that to be interesting. When, when the community has expectations, when the family has expectations, and so forth. One of the things we talked about in Ken Jensen's funeral was family expectations. And I was able to tell a story that uh, took place here in Texas, actually, before I flew up. I heard the story before I even flew to Washington State. Um, another man that had died last weekend, two weekends ago now, um, his great-grandson is a fellow Boy Scout in Bob's troop, and so that's how I heard the story. Uh, he, uh, he was 87 years old. He was uh, the grandfather of, of uh, a friend of mine in the troop, great-grandfather of a friend of Bob's in the troop. And he was the oldest son of a pastor. And that pastor was the oldest son of a pastor, who was also the oldest son of a pastor who was also the oldest son of a pastor, who was also the oldest son of a pastor, who was also the oldest son of a pastor. Six generations of pastors where the oldest son became a pastor and the oldest son became a pastor and so forth, down to this grandfather who just died uh, last weekend. And he was 87 years old, never did become a pastor. And uh, 
you know, had he done so, he would have been the seventh, the seventh generation pastor from father to oldest son, father to oldest son. And you think, wow, seven, that's, you know how biblical the number seven is? What a significant, uh, you know, goodness, what kind of ministry would he have had? And uh, my friend from the scout troop, he, when he was a small boy, he asked his grandfather, he said, Grandpa, how come you never became a pastor? You broke the, the lineage. You broke the tradition. You could have been the seventh gender. Grandpa, how come you never became a pastor? And his grandpa just took him in his arms and said, well, it's not my calling. That's simple. It's not my calling. And, of course, we understand that if you're not called, if that's not your gift, if that's not, if that's not your calling, why would you pursue it with human effort? Just because of a family tradition? Because of family expectations? The most miserable people on earth are those that are trying to live up to family expectations, especially the unreasonable ones that are not compatible with the will of God. And see, that, that man who did not become a pastor, I mean, he's saved, of course. I think he served as a deacon. He did all kinds of things throughout his life. He's with the Lord today, no question about that. But he knew that the ministry wasn't his calling. And so rather than try to disobey God by, and make his family happy, he learned that he had to obey God, fulfill what his calling really was, and teach his family, his children, his grandchildren, and even his great-grandchildren, how to adjust your expectations to what God's plan is all about. In any event, it, worked. it was a good story. I appreciated hearing it before I left. I even incorporated it in the funeral message last Saturday. Well, here's uh, the carpenter and the carpenter's son, and they are a bit... Uh, curious or even offended. And we're told that they're offended here in this very text, that they took offense at him. And so we realize that the, the, uh, the questions that they asked as they worked themselves up into a dither, as they just uh, fed off of one another, the only reason to ask questions of one another, why, why aren't they going to him? Why don't they go to him and say, hello, uh, where did you get this wisdom? Where did you get these powers? We want to learn. Instead, they go to everybody else but him so that the the you know the grapevine is in high gear here, and the rumors can spread, and the the uh, malicious um, conversation can feed itself and lead to ultimately the stumbling block that takes place. And we're going to have to examine the issue on stumbling blocks because this is certainly a great big fat stumbling block, but it's not Jesus's fault. And we're going to learn about that because if we throw a stumbling block out there, that's a sin. We're commanded not to throw stumbling blocks in people's way. But at the same time, we also realize that in spite of everything we do, stumbling blocks are going to happen anyway, in spite of us. And you'll see all those scriptures here before I dismiss you at the top of the hour. Now, so far as the uh, family is concerned, Mary is his mother, no mention of Joseph the father. And uh, his brothers, four brothers are mentioned by name. James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. I guess that'd be Joseph Jr. if, in fact, uh, Joseph was himself not uh, a junior. And I think if you track the genealogy, that's the case. So Joseph is not a junior. That makes this Joseph, Joseph Jr. I said, well, they didn't use junior back then, but we do today, so who cares? Um, but two of these wrote books of the Bible. Uh, James is the author of the book of James. And so when Cliff Beveridge is teaching the book of James on Sunday nights, uh, just have that verse in your mind, Matthew 13, 55. That's his brother. The next 
uh, and they're usually in that order. Uh, James is, is considered to be the oldest, uh, just younger than, than Jesus. And then uh, Joseph, we don't know much about Joseph and Simon, but Judas wrote the book of Jude. So if you ever study the book of Jude, uh, then you've got another brother right there that's mentioned. And then his sisters, plural. Not only are sisters plural, but we have the, the term all. Are they not all with us? Not aren't they both with us or aren't uh, it's aren't they all with us? So minimum of three sisters and we don't know how many. Now, when he relocated the family to Galilee, to uh, Capernaum, we're told about his mother, we're told about his brothers. You know, the mother and the brothers aren't with us. In verse 56, the sisters are with us. But in verse 55, they're just reviewing the names. Because about a year prior to this, they all got relocated to Capernaum when they set up the uh, operations there. So is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and uh, Simon and Judas and his sisters? Are they not all with us? The idea being probably before they relocated uh, from Nazareth to Capernaum, uh, the sisters were undoubtedly married by then and settled down with their husbands and raising their families and so forth. And so they're still local. The uh, Mary and the boys, though, and then if those boys were married, um, and so forth, then they had relocated to Capernaum prior to this chapter here. So sisters, plural, all with us. And then the reference here, the term here, the adverb here is specifically mentioned in Mark 6, 3. Then finally, under the fourth point, and I guess that's all we'll do with the family aspect. There's so many legends and stories and all the rest of it, and all the goofy Dan Brown garbage that's out there as far as, you know, Jesus got married too, you know, ha, 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 and all the other stuff. His brothers, there's no reason why his brothers would not have been married, and, and every church tradition we have is that they were married. And uh, we've even examined some of the descendants of, of James and, and Jude and Joseph and those guys who uh, even had a, a term applied to them in the early church. They uh, were at least observed through the second century, if not the third century, as an identifiable group within the uh, believers there in the early church. We looked at that in a few lessons back. I don't remember the exact study, but we did examine it at that, uh, at that point of time. All right. The fourth thing that we want to get out of this is their subjectivity. The outcome of their subjectivity was an active unbelief. The outcome of their subjectivity was an active unbelief. And I'm going to describe these terms, and I hope they'll give us some things to think about. The outcome of their subjectivity was an active unbelief. And that phrase, active unbelief, is vital. Because all too often we've got kind of a passive view of faith and a passive view of lack of faith or unbelief. And the phrase here in verse 58 is, I like the way the New American Standard renders it, unbelief. He did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. And... Let's keep in mind the active nature of this verb, the active nature of this, context, of this concept. Because all too often, I think, there's a tendency to just simply say, well, uh, faith is faith. And, you know, if I believe something, then, then I believe something. And, and then if I fail to believe something, then, that's, then by default, then that becomes unbelief. And we, we have a watered-down view of unbelief at that point. Because... 
Unbelief is actually more than just failing to believe. Unbelief is in itself an active verb. And if you think about the nature of faith, the nature of belief, meaning that you are placing your confidence in something, you just can't let it go with the default, well, you know, I'm not doing something. See, now, there are are concepts like that in the scripture. Uh, You have light, and an absence of light is... Darkness, that's right. And so you, you're, either, you're either shining forth light or if you fail to exhibit light, well then by default, there's a consequence of no light, which is darkness. Um, but this is not, faith is not uh, similar to that. Faith is not of a nature where the absence of it is a natural consequence of this thing here that we call unbelief. But actually, unbelief itself is an active verb. See, because when you fail to place your faith or confidence in something, at the same time you're doing that, you are placing your faith and confidence in something else. You are actively placing your faith and confidence in something else. If you're not trusting in Christ, what are you trusting in? See, now in a lot of cases, people won't uh, think it through, so they don't put it into words. And they, they, you, you would ask them and they look at you and say, well, no, no, I'm not putting my trust in anything. But they are. If you, if you press them hard enough or long enough or explore the issues with them, you will find that they are placing their confidence in something. Even if they don't put it into words. When it comes right down to it. So, unbelief, their active verb. And we will um, give you that vocabulary here in a moment. It's opistao and opistos, and there's a, a good word study that we can do on that. But it is an active verb. And one of the things we want to stop to consider is, of course, the provision of salvation is made on the basis of faith. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. That God the Father designed salvation to have that uh, as the instrument, as the trigger, or whatever term you want to use to bring about salvation, but more than salvation. Our entire Christian walk is supposed to be by faith. We're told that we walk by faith, not by sight. All right? So it's not just a salvation issue where the question between belief and unbelief becomes important in the Christian way way of life. We're either walking by belief or we're walking by unbelief so far as the Father is concerned. And then obviously we want to have faith at, our, at uh, phase three, at our final assignment here on earth, we want to be able to die with complete faith and confidence, knowing that, uh, that absent from the body is face to face with the Lord. So from salvation to the Christian walk to promotion to glory, every step of the way, we need to have the active faith. All right, first of all, we're told that they took offense. They took offense. We have an imperfect passive of scandalizo. Scandalizo. Think scandal. Scandalizo. It is an imperfect passive of scandalizo. S-K-A-N-D-I-L, I'm sorry, A-L-I-Z-O. Scandalizo number 4624. Scandalizo is the verb. Uh, if you change your idzo ending to an O-N ending, go ahead and change your... Uh, I-Z-O to an O-N, scandalon, S-K-A-N-D-A-L-O-N, scandalon, is a stumbling block. 
a scandalon is a stumbling block. We're commanded not to put a scandalon in front of a brother. Scandalizo means to cause. It's a causative concept. To cause a brother to stumble. To put that block in front of him. To intentionally trip him up. Lead them into sin. Now, some issues on this. I like the way it was phrased as a passive. It is not phrased as an active. Remember, as an active verb, you're doing it. As a passive verb is being done to you. All right. This verse does not say that Jesus caused them to stumble. It does not say that Jesus placed a stumbling block in front of them. It does say it does not say that Jesus offended them. It says that they were offended by him. Does that make sense? It can be very important. You and I are not to give offense. We are not to give offense for anyone. Believe or unbeliever, anyone. However, they may be offended. Not our problem. All right. If a fellow believer is offended at you, just make sure you didn't offend them. Say, how does that work? Well, we see it right here. We see it right here. Because ultimately, it's not you that's doing it. It's the Word of God that's doing it. So uh, let's get a, just a, a short survey on this. Romans chapter 9 is a good text we can examine in this, in this uh, aspect. Romans 9 and verse 33. And this is a great passage. In fact, I'll back up a little bit in Romans 9. This is in the section in Romans 9, 10, and 11 where Paul is reminding his audience that God still has a plan for Israel, that uh, he made unconditional eternal promises to Abraham, unconditional eternal promises to David. Those promises will be fulfilled. The church does not replace Israel. The plan for Israel is currently on hold, but it will be resumed. And we understand that. And uh, this passage also starts to address issues in terms of sovereignty and volition and and issues when God has a plan and program, and we can't resist that. Verse 19 that talks about that. The accountability that we have volitionally to obey God's sovereign plan. But then we get down into verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith but as though it were by works. Remember, faith is the trigger. Faith is the vehicle. Faith is the realm in which God designed His plan to be appropriated. And so Gentiles who had less revelation and yet who responded positively in terms of faith were blessed. Israel, who had all the revelation, the whole Testament was given to Israel, and yet pursued God's uh, plan on the basis of works rather than on the basis of faith, well, they stumbled. So again, the question, why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. Now, we can rejoice. We love Christ. He's the cornerstone. But he's also the stumbling stone at the same time. Just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense and he who believes in him will not be disappointed and so we 
are reminded of what these concepts are all about. All right, First Peter 2, 8. We'll come back to Romans here in just a moment. We're going to be back in Romans 14 before you can, faster than you can say, Bob's your uncle. But let's look real quickly then at 1 Peter 2, 8, because it's another quote. Coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones. In other words, rejected by men, choice and precious in the sight of God are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, the provision we have as church-age believers. For this is contained in Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve. You've got to see that. It is an active verb. It's not just that they didn't believe. They actively disbelieved. Got to recognize that. That's right. We've got belief and disbelief. Two active verbs. And the second one is not just simply the failure to do the first. The stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, for they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. All right, so they were disobedient, that's their volition, the consequences thereof, but they were also appointed. There's sovereignty at work there as well. All right, back to Romans now, Romans 14. Now, on a practical basis, we see. That the stumbling block is Christ. The stone of stumbling is Christ. And what will cause this stumbling more than anything else, in where it needs to cause the stumbling more than anywhere else, is in the heart of the unbeliever who is rejecting Christ. But there are other ways in which we can cause stumbling that are not Christ, that are not good stumbling blocks. And that's what four, chapter 14 deals with. You know, if you're proclaiming Christ, and you're proclaiming Christ faithfully, and then somebody stumbles, oh well. But if you're involved in carnality, or you're involved in uh, an, an aspect of liberty that's unnecessary, and through that, you then cause a brother to stumble, that's, that's a different animal. And that's where you are accountable. That's what Romans 14 deals with. Alright, so Romans 14, you'll notice it's a 23-verse chapter. Let's just... Zoom in on the fact of verse 13. Well, it starts off in verse 1, accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. So when we deal with our fellow believers, we are to be accepting. Um, and it's not that they're disobedient. It's not that they're carnal. It's not that they're wild. They're just weak in faith. You've got a brother or sister that's struggling, and they're struggling with a maturity issue. And uh, they've got some... Questions about liberty and legalism and, and what's allowed and what's not allowed and they're not comfortable with certain things. Fine. Give them time. Show them some grace to grow up and let them show you some grace to grow up. So you accept the one who is weak in faith but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things but he who is weak eats vegetables only. That's just a for instance. There could be any number of other issues. Drinking. 
dancing, going to movies, all kinds of things that believers will divide over when the reality is in the non-issues, if you can't point to a verse that says, thou shalt not, then you realize that there's room for differences of application. Uh, Verse 5, one person regards one day above another. Another person regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. You notice what Scripture is saying here. Scripture is not saying that one is right and the other is wrong. Scripture is saying they can both be right and they can both be convinced in the Scriptures. Your convictions of the Scriptures. In these areas where there is no clearly defined right or wrong. It says each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord. And he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. So in both cases, they're right. They're right for what they're doing because their reasons for what they're doing are their convictions, their understandings of the scriptures, their convictions, and their desire to glorify Jesus Christ in everything that they do. And so they're both right. And so we get to verse 10 and we're told, but you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat. And so we're not here to look down our noses or condemn a brother, especially in a, in a non-issue. Why do we turn non-issues into issues? When scripture says, you know what, it doesn't matter. Verse 12, so then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. See, this then becomes our primary assignment. In, these, in, these, in the, doubtful, the realm of doubtful things is what Glenn Carnegie used to call it. That was the doctrine of doubtful things or the gray areas or the non-essentials. Where we don't have a, a scripture verse that tells us Something that's commanded or something that's prohibited, for example. Now, you can't, you can't take sin and put sin into this verse and say, oh, well, there, see, I'm going to become, uh, I'm going to become promiscuous because, uh, uh, happy is he who does not condemn himself in that which he approves, right? And I approve of my promiscuous lifestyle, so, uh, I'm, I'm happy about that. And, and don't condemn me. No. <laughs> you have just departed from the realm of Romans 14. Because this is not, uh, sin is not an issue for your own uh, discretion. It's not an issue for your own um, application. Like these are. God the Father has left it in our own discretion, in our own uh, determination, based on convictions of the scriptures. How are we going to live our lives to glorify Christ? And so we have verse 13. Same context, same chapter, way down in verse 21, but you'll notice uh, all throughout here, we're not to put a stumbling block. Verse 14 says, I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. So if you are absolutely convicted of an issue, uh, smoking or drinking or dancing or whatever, and you're just absolutely convicted Beyond a doubt that that dancing is, sorry, that it's, it's lewd and lascivious. 
and it's it's you know you're you're out there in front of people and you're moving your body around and you're wiggling and you're whatever and and you just you know it's 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 enticing it's 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 lewd and and I shouldn't uh, I'm just not comfortable with that I'm supposed to glorify God with my body and and uh, and I just, that's just not right I, I I'm just that's just not Christian all right then you better not be dancing if that's your conviction see. Or drinking, or smoking, or all these other things that believers will get wrapped around the axle, uh, you know, all weird out about. If the Bible doesn't say it, and you're not convicted because the Bible doesn't say it, then you have the application to make here. Nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you're no longer walking according to love. See, when we get into 1 Corinthians 13, it's all about love. And if you're walking in love, you can't be out there tripping your brother. So if because of food your brother is hurt, you're no longer walking according to love, do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died, realizing that stumbling blocks are destructive. Stumbling blocks destroy. So uh, verse 19 says, we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. See, it's not just... A negative command, don't put a stumbling block out there, but a positive command, build up your brother. Pursue the things that make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. See, God's in the building business. He's building us up. Why are we tearing one another down? We're supposed to be his co-workers, his fellow workers. Not much of a fellow worker if he's building and you're destroying so verse 21, it is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. Say, if that's what it is, if it's causing him to stumble, then let it go. At least for the time being, or at least for this time while you're with him. Don't, uh, don't make it a stumbling block while you're there. Then the faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith. And whatever is not from faith is said. So important that we have a handle on that particular passage. Parallel passage to that one is 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 9 and 13. We dealt with it uh, over a year ago in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Similar context, similar emphasis. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 9 and 13. We do have liberty. Liberty is all well and good. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. In verse 13, therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. So we have the application of it there. Now, Jesus didn't cause them to stumble. Stumbling blocks do come. It is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. But woe to him. And there's a verse I want to get. It might be right here. Um, it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. Just make sure it's not you. Alright, I don't see it there. Maybe it's back in Romans 14. Anybody have the verse memorized? 
All right, I'll look it up. The word inevitable. Ah, that's why it's in the Gospels. Matthew 18.7 and Luke 17.1. Matthew 18.7. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks, for it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. We're going to have them. They will happen. But woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. Just make sure it's not you. <laughs> All right? The stumbling block is going to happen. And there's plenty of them out there anyway. I mean, the world puts out a ton of them. The, the flesh puts out a whole bunch of them. The devil puts out a whole bunch of them. We don't need to be adding to what the world, the flesh, and the devil are putting out there. All right? A good application of it there. All right, see how handy it is having the Bible software? It's probably why I don't memorize more verses than I do, because it's too easy just to search for the word. All right. The last thing we want to look at here is their unbelief. He performed not many miracles because of their unbelief. He performed not many miracles because of their unbelief. And this uh, this is where the faith healers and the crazy people, you know, they, this is their cop out when their healing doesn't work. Or they say, well, you don't have enough belief. You don't have enough faith. Yeah. You know, if your faith was stronger, then you'd be cured of cancer and all this other stuff. You know? My brother-in-law, if he just had more faith, then uh, you know he'd be cured of cancer. And uh, people are blaming him for not uh, not having more faith. Say vocabulary, vocabulary, apostia, number five seventy. You also have that's the noun, apostia. Now pistis is faith, p-i-s-t-i-s is faith. And you put the alpha in front of it, and that, that negates it. It's kind of like when you put on in front of an English word. You go from friendly to unfriendly, happy to unhappy, right? You put on in front of an English word, you just negated it. Well, in Greek, you put the alpha in front of your word to negate it. So, apistia, also apisteo, and apistos. Actually, apistos, since accent is on the alpha there, apistos. Apostia, aposteo, and apostus. Number 570, number 569, and number 571 in your Strong's Index. Now we want to note some things here. First of all, there is a great word study we can do, and we've got a couple extra minutes if we could maybe spend some time on that. Um, if you look up all of those words and you find where they're used and you track, track them throughout the New Testament, you have a very useful word study. But we also have two different things that are said here, one in Matthew and one in Mark. Let's look at them, because it says both that he did not, and it also says that he could not. And I want to examine that here in our time remaining. Matthew chapter 13, then. In Matthew 13, it says, they took offense at him, but Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. So there we realize it was the subjectivity of the Nazarene, Nazareth locals that uh, would not allow them to, uh, to accept the ministry of God's word as coming from God himself. This is part of what Evergrace has to realize now as they start looking for their own pastor. They've got a couple of, of uh, possibilities and people they're thinking of and so forth. Uh, but... One of them is uh, at Dallas right now. He's uh, scheduled to graduate in June, uh, but 
He's a local boy. He grew up there, grew up with me, grew up with all of us up there. And his mother's in the church, and it would take an awful lot of objectivity for him to minister there. Same with me. Taking off. People called me during, I won't even tell you who called or how many, but I had a number of encouraging phone calls from my Austin flock who were very clever about the way they, you know, went about it. But no, there was no temptation at all to stay in Washington State or to become a candidate for a church now that needs a pastor in Washington. No temptation at all. Not even close. And I wouldn't be qualified anyway because of this verse. I'd be without honor. I'd be, uh, there's there's too much subjectivity, as it were. Uh, Both ways, I might add. Both ways. Not only the, the congregation towards their pastor, but me towards them. Because I'd have a whole ton of memories of things from years past that I couldn't get over, probably, when it comes right down to it. You know? <laughs> Think about it. You know, maybe girls I might have had an interest in and might have, you know, wanted to ask, and then they wouldn't give me the time of day and whatever. and You know, that kind of thing. And, and now I'm supposed to be their pastor 20 years later? Forget that. <laughs> oh, I'm in trouble. All right. Let's just get this passage done. <laughs> anyway, the prophet has no honor in his hometown. And that's important. And uh, I'm praying for Evergrace that, uh, I don't know, if Jesse Acosta, Robert Rice, or some of these guys can go up there and give them some teaching and provide some objectivity in, uh, in a whole lot of different ways. Now, the vocabulary term there, note, here in Matthew it says that he did not. It says, and he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. It does not say in Matthew that he could not. It says that he did not. And yet when you turn over to Mark, it does say that he could not. In Mark, it does say that he could not. So I think we want to examine both sides of it. Not only that he did not. Of course, it doesn't impair his sovereignty. He could have if he wanted to. But yet you get into Mark and it does say that he could not. So... um, it says he could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Consider what he might have done. All right? And he was going around the villages teaching uh, as he wondered at their unbelief. He could do no miracle there. Now, when we think about what God can do and what God cannot do, part of the problem, of course, is we have this definition of sovereignty that God can do anything. We have a definition of omnipotence that God can do anything. And we, we know that's not true. We know that God cannot lie, right? We know there are things God cannot do. So we have a flawed definition of omnipotence if we say God can do anything. It's a better definition of omnipotence, which we studied in basics, if we say that God can do all things that are consistent with his own nature, his own essence, his own attributes. And so he cannot lie, he cannot break his word, he cannot, there's a lot of things he cannot do. He cannot, uh, he cannot bring the unbeliever to glory apart from the provision that was made through faith in Jesus Christ. That's why the death of Jesus Christ was necessary. The the payment for sins had to have been made. There's a lot of things he cannot do. There are things Jesus could not do. He could not do anything apart from the will of the Father. And here we have a clue that part of the Father's will in the performance of miracles was to do so in coordination with the faith application of those that were there to observe the miracles. In other words, it wasn't just simply to do a whole bunch of spectacular things to impress people. 
but rather with those positive volition to the Word of God, those who are walking by faith, who are responding by faith, they were provided the signs, the testimonies, to the authenticity, to the message that was going to be delivered, so that the message would be paid attention to and not necessarily the miracles. With a, ooh, wow, gee whiz, look what he does. But in faith, they could observe the miracles, recognize the credentials, and humble themselves to the teaching and recognize the Word of God as it was going forth. And so I think we uh, have a better handle on it when we look at it that way. Also, we realize that it wasn't his purpose to heal everybody. You know, He left a lot of people sick. And that was his whole message last time he was in Nazareth when they ran him off, tried to run him off a cliff. He said, you know what, there were lots of lepers in Elisha's day. And only one of them got healed. And there were, there were a lot of widows in Elijah's day, but Elijah was sent to just that one. And oh, that made him mad. There were a lot of sick people here, a lot of demon-possessed people, a lot of other people. He didn't heal them all. As we get to the book of Acts, we find the disciples. And the apostles are now healing people and, and uh, performing miracles and casting out demons and so forth. And you think, well, if Jesus had done a better job at it, that would have all been taken care of before the apostles ever got into the ministry. <laughs> No, it wasn't that he was sloppy or didn't do a good enough job. He did everything the Father had for him to do. And there were some other folks who were not sick long enough. They had to be sick longer because it was the Father's assignment for the disciples to heal them in the book of Acts. It was not the Father's assignment for Christ to heal them in the Gospels. So, you know, a lot of times we have these prayers for healing. We want the healing today, right here, right now. Well, maybe they haven't been sick long enough. Because the Father has a plan, he's got a purpose for why he sent that disease, why he sent that sickness or condition. And it has a duration, and the duration is perfect, not one day too long, not one day too short. The conclusion has already been designed, either physical healing or physical death. And we're wrong if we're praying apart from the will of God. Alright, so the text says both. That he did not, if you read the Matthew text, the text also says that he could not, if you read the Mark text. And I hope that we can lock in on our own assignments that way. What is it that I can do? What is it that I should do? So that I do what I'm supposed to do, I don't do what I'm not supposed to do. I think we all have to answer that question. All right, that wraps up this episode we will move on to episode 34 and in the mark text we just move on to the very next verse he summoned the 12 and began to send them out in pairs sent them out two by two so bummer to uh the guy that gets paired up with judas iscariot don't you think all right extra credit next week if you can tell me who that is yeah think about it they sent out two by two so who got paired up with judas what a man bad day to be him Anybody know? All right. Of course. Simon the Zealot. Simon the Zealot. Can you imagine? All right. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for this day. Thank you, Father, for the uh, blessings of being back with my flock and knowing what your uh, will is, what your plan is, and what your provision is. Father, thank you for the ministry of your word as it goes forth. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.